This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. October 1966. In Bangui, the capital of the Central African Republic, thousands packed into Boganda Stadium to listen to their leader speak. 44-year-old Colonel Jean Bedel Bokassa had only been in power for 10 months, but during that time, he had gained the adoration of his people. Much of this public support was due to the promises Bokassa made when he seized power. He promised to root out corruption, to expel Chinese officials who were spreading communism, and to hold free and fair elections. This promise of democracy was the most important one that Bokassa made to his citizens. He had assured them that his time in power was only going to be temporary as he led the nation through a transitional period. But after 10 months in power, Bokassa realized he didn't want to relinquish his throne. And so, stepping to the podium, he told the crowd that the elections were no longer going to happen. He would be staying in power indefinitely. Bokassa said, I am everywhere and nowhere. I see nothing, yet I see all. I listen to nothing and hear everything. Such is the role of a head of state. With the announcement came a stark realization for the people of the Central African Republic. Jean Bedel Bokassa wasn't their savior. He was their destroyer. Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. Today, we're looking at the last of our three post-colonial African dictators, Jean-Bedel Bokassa, president of the Central African Republic. 
Bokasa, a man whose vanity knew no bounds, eventually declared himself emperor. He became infamous through tales of child murder and cannibalism. This week, we'll take a look at how he rose through the ranks of the French army and, like many African dictators, came to power in a coup amid threats to his own position. Next week, we'll explore his actions as emperor and his eventual downfall. Jean Bedel Bokassa has the distinct honor of not being the most ruthless of the African dictators we've discussed so far this season. But while he may not have been as bloodthirsty as Idi Amin or Francisco Macias Nguema, he still ruled over the Central African Republic as a fearsome dictator. With the military and rumors of cannibalism on his side, Bokasa knew that no one would try and topple him. However, those rumors were a double-edged sword. Bokasa's rule was wholly founded on his ego. While Idi Amin mocked the rest of the world and Francisco Macias Nguema shut himself off, Jean Bedel Bokasa wanted to be revered. Ironically, after declaring himself emperor around 11 years into his presidency, he became nothing more than an eccentric laughingstock among the international community. And as his ego took hit after hit, he took his aggressions out on the country's students, a move that would lead to the downfall of Central Africa's first and only emperor. Jean Bedel Bokassa was born in 1921 in the village of Bobangi, located in Ubangi Shari, one of the four territories that made up French Equatorial Africa. Growing up as one of 12 children, Bokassa witnessed firsthand the cruelty of French colonial rule in post-World War I Africa. France viewed its African colonies as a source for quick cash. Rubber, gold, ivory, hardwoods, any and all raw materials were mined and exported. To keep the business running, the French established a form of feudalism called corvée. The corvée system was essentially indentured servitude. African laborers were required to work in a certain industry for a prescribed number of days each year, sometimes 60 days at a time, sometimes longer. And of course, there was no pay. As a young boy, Bokassa saw his indigenous neighbors forced to work the rubber plantations, mine the gold, and cut the timber. To keep their workers in line, the French employed armed private militias. Treatment was harsh and abysmal. Political scientist Samuel DeCallo likened the system to a concentration camp. To incentivize the men to meet their daily quotas, women and children were locked in cages. Their freedom depended on their father's work output. And should any of them act out of turn, they faced the dreaded catanine tails, a multi-tailed whip known for its brutality. In the 1920s, a Baya healer and prophet named Carnu advocated for resistance against French colonial rule. He quickly gained followers, among them Bokassa's father, Mindogon. Mindogon was a foreman for a French company. He knew the extent of the brutality the French used to keep their local workers in line. 
So when Karnu began preaching resistance, Mindogon answered the call. In November 1927, Mindogon released a group of women and children who were being held captive by the company's overseers while the men worked. He was quickly arrested, taken to the town square in the nearby village of Mbaiki, and beaten to death. One week later, Bokasa's distraught mother took her own life. At just six years old, Bokasa became an orphan. In the wake of his parents' death, the young Bokasa was sent to a local French missionary school, where his life only got worse. During his formative years, Bokasa was bullied over his mother and father's deaths. But instead of becoming an angry child, he channeled that energy into becoming physically and emotionally strong. This upbringing, combined with the harsh realities of French colonial life, would transform his despondency into egotism. It became obvious to Bokasa that the only person who mattered was himself. No one else would look out for him. Which makes it slightly ironic that after graduating secondary school, he joined the French army, an organization that required cooperation with others. For 18-year-old Bokasa, it was less about being part of a team and more about the military medals and decorations. Being surrounded by French soldiers, he grew to love their uniforms and the badges of honor that officers wore. The prospect of being praised for his work appealed to Bokasa. After hearing tales of glory about French generals like Napoleon Bonaparte, he realized that the French army might be his way to achieving prestige. So, in May 1939, Bokasa enlisted. Less than six months later, he was sent off to fight the Nazis. In the summer of 1940, France fell to the Germans. French General Charles de Gaulle fled to London and sent out the call to resist the new Nazi puppet government that had been established in France. Nearly all the French colonial forces ignored the call, except for one. Bokassa's unit was the only one to heed the call and join the Allies. They eventually joined up with the British Army and helped push the Nazis out of North Africa. Bokasa proved to be a formidable soldier and quickly climbed the ranks. During the war, he earned a bevy of commendations, and with each medal that he won, his ego inflated. None of the people back home could brag that they'd won such high honors, but he could. During the course of the war, Bokasa became a great admirer of Charles de Gaulle, even likening him to a father figure. In fact, Impressing de Gaulle would be something Bokassa would strive to do throughout his rise to power. After the war, Bokassa stayed in the military and was stationed in the French Riviera. In 1950, he was transferred to Vietnam, where he recognized France's declining hold over the Southeast Asian colony. It was during his time in Vietnam that Bokassa began to believe he was destined for something greater. As one of the few soldiers to survive their fight against the Vietnamese rebels, he believed it was a sign that fate had special plans for him. But Bokassa still had no idea what that destiny was. 
For now, he chose to focus on proving himself within the army. In the late 1950s, he was promoted to lieutenant, a rarity among African soldiers. But while Bokasa was earning his bars in the military, his home region of Ubangi Shari was in the midst of a fight for independence. After World War II, European colonization in Africa was collapsing. The prominence of African troops, like Bokasa's unit, in the war effort was partly responsible for that shift. As historian Brian Titley wrote, the vital role played by the colonial troops in de Gaulle's army meant that the relationship between France and its African subjects could never again be the same. And as resistance against the French increased in Vietnam and Algeria during the war, France feared that this resistance would spread to the African colonies as well. The last thing they wanted were more revolutions. So France loosened their brutal economic oppression and allowed the colonies to be represented in the French National Assembly. But this wasn't enough. Many began to call not just for more equality, but total independence. And the loudest voice during this period was Barthélemy Boganda. In the late 1940s, Boganda created the Movement for the Social Evolution of Black Africa, or MISAN. His grand vision was for all four French African districts, Chad, French Gabon, French Congo, and Ubangi Shari, to be united into a single country, the Central African Republic. However, the leaders of Chad, French Gabon, and French Congo refused the plan. Only Ubangi Shari agreed to participate and was renamed the Central African Republic, or CAR. Unfortunately, Boganda would never live to see independence. In March 1959, he died in a plane crash on his way to Bangui. The death sent shockwaves throughout the new republic. Boganda was instantly transformed into a martyr and a national hero. Rumors circulated that the French government had secretly sabotaged his plane in an effort to silence him. The theory gained traction when, after a brief power struggle, David Daco became Boganda's successor. Daco was much more open to French appeasement, and with the backing of the French military, he was able to take control of the CAR's new government. Daco was also a distant cousin of Jean Bedel Bocasa. And right around the time when Daco came into power, the 38-year-old Lieutenant Bocasa was transferred back to the CAR. For the first time in 20 years, he was home. What he saw was a very different country than the one he had left. The Central African Republic was on the verge of total autonomy. And with his cousin at the head, Bocasa realized that being in Daco's good graces would benefit him. It was a chance to make a name for himself at home, to earn respect and admiration of the people that had once rejected him. With his two decades of military experience, Bokasa recognized that the CAR would need someone of his background to lead the military. And for David Daco, bringing Bokasa into his administration made perfect sense. Little did either know that within a few short years, they would be at each other's throats. Coming up, 
Family tensions lead to a coup d'etat. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In late 1959, 38-year-old Jean Bedel Bocasa returned to his homeland after 20 years of army service and saw that it had radically changed. It was no longer a French colony, but a semi-autonomous nation. For two decades, Bocasa had climbed the ranks within the French army, reaching the rank of lieutenant. And when he was transferred back to the Central African Republic, now led by his cousin, David Dacko, he saw the political transition as a new opportunity to achieve personal glory. In August 1960, France finally recognized that it could no longer hold on to its African colonies. It finally granted the Central African Republic full independence. A year later, in July 1961, Bokassa was promoted to the rank of captain in the French army. However, six months later, he resigned and joined the Central African forces as a battalion commander. He became Daco's right-hand man on the military cabinet. How exactly Bokasa was able to insert himself into the cabinet almost immediately upon his return to the country is something of a mystery. It's possible that his meteoric rise was a result of pure nepotism. It's also possible that Daco saw Bokasa's two-decade military career as a safeguard against threats to his own personal power. Indeed, in the first years of the New Republic, David Daco was already setting himself up as an authoritarian. Daco's political party, called Misan, was still the dominant party in the new Central African Republic. But for Daco, dominance wasn't enough. There was always the possibility that someone from the opposition could climb the political ladder. So he began arresting members of those opposition parties. Then, in July 1962, Daco announced that Misan would be the only political party allowed in the country. Every single citizen throughout Central Africa would be forced into membership and thus have to pay dues. A year and a half later, in January 1964, David Daco was formally elected president, receiving 100% of the vote. Of course, when there's no one else running, it isn't that difficult to receive such a favorable turnout. And because the French still wanted to do business in Central Africa and already had solid relations with Daco, there was no outcry from Paris. In their eyes, a DACO presidency was a win-win. Throughout all of this, Jean Bedel Bocasa was less focused on climbing the political ranks as he was in collecting military titles. In fact, in his eyes, honorifics were even more important than ensuring that the army he commanded was properly trained. Despite his vast military knowledge after two decades in the French army, Bocasa reportedly never actually trained the 500 men at his disposal. 
All he really wanted was to say he was in charge of the military, to appear more important than he actually was. Bokassa loved the pomp and circumstance that came with his so-called position. For example, he constantly insisted that during every presidential ceremony, he was placed right next to President Daco. All this vanity made others in Daco's cabinet nervous. In their eyes, Bokassa's showboating was all part of a plan to gain the undying loyalty of the military in case he decided to stage a coup. Initially, Daco laughed off the idea that his cousin had his eyes on power. He famously once said, Colonel Bokassa only wants to collect medals, and he is too stupid to pull off a coup d'etat. But Daco was wrong. Bokassa wasn't stupid. He was keenly aware that other members of the cabinet were looking for ways to rein him in. In fact, from the very moment he was invited to join Daco's cabinet, Bokassa understood that it was an attempt to decentralize the power he held over the military. But still, unlike the other cabinet members, Bokassa had 500 men who would actually follow his direction, poorly trained as they may be. And by the beginning of 1965, he refused to go anywhere without soldiers at his side. When Daco saw his cousin constantly surrounded by armed men, he started to believe that perhaps Bokassa did intend to overthrow him. As a way to combat this threat, Daco established his own 500-man police force, or gendarmerie. These men would be just enough to take on Bokassa's army if it came to it. The tension between Bokassa and Daco came to a head in the summer of 1965. In July, Bokassa was sent to Paris to represent the CAR for Bastille Day. But as Bokassa was preparing for his trip back, he was informed that Daco had banned him from returning home. The whole diplomatic journey was apparently a ploy to send him into exile. For three months, Bokassa publicly demanded to be brought back home, sending messages to his French allies and members of the CAR military. He even went directly to French President Charles de Gaulle. De Gaulle allegedly sent Daco a personal message writing, Bokassa must be immediately returned to his post. I cannot tolerate the mistreatment of my companion in arms. By October, Daco caved to the pressure from France and allowed Bokassa to return to Bangui. But that didn't mean he was giving up. With Bokassa back in Central Africa, he found another route to silence his cousin. In December 1965, less than two months after his return, Bokassa's military budget was rejected by Daco. Meanwhile, Daco had approved an increase in the budget for his own gendarmerie. Daco's plan was to financially weaken the military and replace it with a much stronger, much more loyal force of his own. He also was making plans for the gendarmerie chief to replace Bokassa as military advisor. Unfortunately, Bokassa figured out the plan. He was so angry that he loudly announced he was going to stage a coup. At first, Bokassa was all talk. These were idle threats, with the hope of scaring Daco into submission. 
However, one man in Bokassa's ranks was growing tired of the empty threats. Captain Alexander Banza thought it was time for Bokassa to put up or shut up. Like Bokassa, Alexander Banza had spent his career in the French military. He was described by historian Brian Titley as intelligent, ambitious, and unscrupulous. Banza saw the mounting tensions with Daco as the perfect opportunity for Bokassa to seize power. If he did decide to stage a real coup, Banza would be on board, and in return for his support, he hoped to be rewarded with a nice position in Bokassa's new government. Whatever Banza whispered in Bokassa's ear throughout November and December worked. Just weeks after his budget was denied, Bokassa was convinced it was time to make good on his threats of a coup. He set the takeover for December 31, 1965. In the lead-up to New Year's Eve, Bokassa wasn't hiding that he was up to something. Some members of the cabinet caught on and warned Daco that Bokassa should be thrown into jail. But for some inexplicable reason, Daco ignored the advice. At around 10.30 p.m. on New Year's Eve, Bokassa and Banza organized a unit of soldiers at Camp Daru, outside of the capital. They ordered the unit to go to the presidential palace and neutralize the security. Once they had control of the building, Bokassa and Banza would arrest Daco. At the same time, a different unit was sent to secure Radio Bangi, the city's radio station. This way, Daco and his supporters would be unable to send radio signals for help. After the units left on their missions, Bokassa sent an urgent message to Jean Aizamo, chief of the gendarmerie, to come to Camp Daru to sign some papers. Aizamo refused. It was New Year's Eve, after all. He had plans. But Bokassa insisted, and Aizamo was forced to leave his friends and head over, a decision he would soon regret. Upon his arrival, Bokassa and Banza told Aizamo they were staging a coup and asked if he would support them. Aizamo unsurprisingly refused, so Bokassa and Banza locked him up. With Aizamo out of the picture, Bokassa gathered the rest of the troops and finally revealed what was going on. Sort of. He claimed that Daco had resigned and given control of the country to Aizamo. Aizamo's plan was to strengthen the gendarmerie and weaken the army. It was either now or never to strike back and secure power for themselves. The majority of the army fell in line. The few that didn't were thrown into jail with Aizamo. With a group of men behind them, Bokassa and Banza hopped into a white Peugeot sedan and stormed the palace. As they made their way through the dirt streets of Bangui, some of Aizamo's gendarmerie became suspicious of Bokassa's convoy. A small firefight broke out, but Bokassa and his men were able to suppress it. When they finally got to the palace, they were shocked to discover that Daco wasn't there. Bokassa was afraid that Daco had discovered the coup and fled the capital. But his fears couldn't have been further from the truth. Daco was, in fact, entirely ignorant of the plot. Earlier that night, he had left the palace to celebrate New Year's Eve. 
He was still at the party when reports came in that a coup was underway. Dako immediately made his way back to Bangui to stage his defense. Unfortunately, he ran into some of Bokasa's soldiers at a checkpoint and was immediately arrested. They took him to the palace where Bokasa and Banza were waiting for him. With a smile on his face, Bokasa walked over and embraced his humiliated, deposed cousin. He whispered in his ear, I tried to warn you, but now it's too late. They forced Dako to sign a letter of resignation. Banza wanted to kill Dako right then and there, but Bokasa refused. Dako was still family. Instead, they would lock him up and figure out what to do with him later. In the meantime, there was one more stop on their road to total takeover. At a little after 3 a.m., Bokasa arrived at Radio Bangi and ordered that a message be played across the city. In the early hours of January 1st, 1966, the people of Central African Republic awoke to the following message. Central Africans, this is Colonel Bokasa speaking to you. Since 3 a.m. this morning, your army has taken control of the country. The Dako government has resigned. The hour of justice is at hand. The bourgeoisie is abolished. A new era of equality among all has begun. Central Africans, wherever you may be, be assured that the army will defend you and your property. Long live the Central African Republic. Coming up, as Bokasa begins to consolidate his power, a rift forms between him and Banza. Now, back to the story. In the early morning hours of January 1st, 1966, Colonel Jean Bedel Bokasa and Captain Alexander Banza overthrew President David Dako. With very little resistance, 43-year-old Bokasa became the leader of the Central African Republic. Like many young African countries in the age of decolonization, the new government quickly gave way to chaos and corruption. After centuries of European oppression, the power vacuum left by withdrawing colonizers made room for despots to sweep in. Bokasa was now one of them. The coup was, for the most part, a bloodless one. Only eight deaths were reported. But the aftermath was anything but peaceful. Bokasa quickly filled Ngaragba prison, located in the capital of Bangui, with all the enemies of his revolution. By the end of January, over 60 members of Dako's security force were shackled and awaiting their fate. David Dako himself actually met a much kinder fate than some of the members of his cabinet who were tortured or executed. Dako was simply thrown into a cellar in Camp Deru and locked away for years. But one man in particular didn't get off so easily. Jean Aizamo, the head of the gendarmerie. A week and a half after the coup, he was sent to Ngaragba prison. It's unclear whether or not he received any sort of trial, even if it was a show trial. But by the end of the month, he was dead. Many sources claim that it was due to neglect and mistreatment. 
The weeks and months immediately following his takeover were chaotic for Bokassa. But the most pressing issue he faced was legitimizing the coup itself, both at home and abroad. In fact, outside of the capital, no one really knew who Bokassa was. To solve that problem, Bokassa immediately crafted an image of himself as a man of intelligence and importance. On the day of the coup itself, he made sure that he had his picture taken with his military medals clearly visible. These photographs immediately found their way into the newspapers. Bokassa wanted the people to see him as a freedom fighter, someone of strength and power. As historian Brian Titley writes, here was a man with experience of the world who had fought in France's wars, earned legitimate honors, and had risen through the ranks to command even Frenchmen. The contrast was simple. Daco was a slimy politician. Bokassa was a leader of men. With Bokassa in charge, the Central African Republic would become great. For a man who seemed to favor the military over politics, Bokassa showed a true knack for political maneuvering. When he took control, he abolished the corrupt National Assembly and replaced it with the Revolutionary Council. He promised that this council and his reign as leader was only temporary and that free and fair elections were right around the corner. Familiar promises made by many despots who have no intention of stepping down. Bokassa even claimed that if the people wanted the former president David Dacko on the ballot, he would allow it. He wanted to make it clear that the purpose of the coup was to root out corruption and to turn the economy around. And for a while, that's what he did. With his co-conspirator Alexander Banza installed as finance minister, Bokassa went about enacting reforms that saved the country from potential bankruptcy. They got rid of corrupt officials and rooted out civil service grafts and bribery. Next, Bokassa focused on putting the people to work. He knew that if the country was going to prosper, he needed to rely less on foreign aid and more on their own industry. Early into his presidency, he declared that all men and women between the ages of 18 and 55 must provide proof that they could work. If they did, they quickly found themselves in the fields and mines in conditions only slightly better than when the French ruled. However, unlike Francisco Macias and Guema, Bocasa didn't enact brutal forced labor laws. Instead, a person who didn't work would face a fine. Bocasa's reforms weren't just for the benefit of the people. He also wanted to boost his image in the international community. When he ordered the creation of a public transportation system or increased women's rights, including punishing parents who prevented their daughters from going to school, most of it was done to show the West that Central Africa was becoming a modern country. But the approval he desired the most was from Charles de Gaulle. De Gaulle was completely taken aback by the coup. He even threatened to cut off aid should anything happen to the captive David Dacko. So Bacasa made it his mission to show that he was treating his cousin fairly. He assured the French that the coup was needed, that Central Africa had fallen to corruption, and Bocassa was its savior. 
One of his leading arguments was that his coup had prevented a Chinese communist coup. A year earlier, Daco had reached out to China for economic assistance in an attempt to loosen France's grip over the country. Bokassa went so far as to accuse Jean Aizamo of being in league with Chinese agents, plotting a communist takeover. If it wasn't for Bokassa, the nation would have fallen behind the Iron Curtain. How much the French believed this is up for debate. But de Gaulle knew he couldn't completely ignore the Central African Republic's new leader. It was becoming obvious that Bokassa wasn't going to relinquish his power as promised. In October 1966, Bokassa made that sentiment official. He announced that he was going to remain as leader indefinitely. A month later, de Gaulle formally invited Bokassa to visit Paris. It was the moment Bokassa had been waiting for legitimizing his rule and giving him the respect he so desperately craved. In the years that followed, Bokassa turned the Central African Republic into his own lavish fiefdom. Pictures of him in full military regalia were published in textbooks, painted on the sides of buildings, and even made into t-shirts. He threw expensive parties and dinners on the government's dime, draining the state's already dwindling treasury. Unfortunately, these indulgences were slowly but surely driving a wedge between Bokassa and his number two, Alexander Banza. A year or so into the regime, Bokassa and Banza began butting heads over the budget, particularly Bokassa's personal spending. Tensions escalated so quickly that Bokassa refused to leave the military base at Camp Daru and made sure he had a pistol nearby whenever Banza was around. If Banza would have been anyone else, he would have been thrown into prison, tortured, and never heard from again. But as co-conspirator of the coup, Banza was afforded the opportunity to criticize Bokassa and admonish him for his wild and reckless spending. That didn't mean Bokassa would listen to him, far from it. The more grievances he aired, the less standing he had with the president. In April 1968, Bokassa suddenly announced a cabinet shuffle. Banza was demoted from finance minister to the health department. He was no longer in charge of the country's budget. Banza held his tongue, but he quietly began to plot a coup d'etat of his own. In April 1969, Banza made the mistake of revealing this plot to Lieutenant Jean-Claude Mandaba, the commander of a large military base called Camp Kassai. Mandaba, in turn, revealed the conspiracy to Bokassa. On April 10th, 1969, Banza arrived at Camp Kassai, the plans for the coup in his pocket. The moment he stepped onto the base, Mandaba and his men ambushed Banza, stuffed him in the trunk of a Mercedes, and drove to one of Bokassa's houses in the country. Bokassa was there waiting for him. He desperately wanted to kill Banza right then and there, but his advisors warned that it would look unbecoming. So after torturing him for a while, Bokassa turned the traitor over for a proper military trial. On April 12th, Alexander Banza, bloody and bruised, stood before a tribunal and confessed that he intended to overthrow the government. 
However, he swore that his intention was never to kill Bokasa, simply to exile him. Unfortunately, the details didn't matter. The trial was short and swift. That afternoon, Banza was declared guilty and sentenced to death. He was immediately taken behind the camp and executed by firing squad. According to most reports, he faced his executioners bravely. Bokasa didn't stop there, though. Banza's family, wife, children, parents, siblings, and mistress, were all rounded up and thrown into jail. The message was clear. No one who opposed Bokasa was safe. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll follow Bokasa's contentious relationship with France and how his increasingly eccentric and violent behavior led to his downfall. Among the many sources we used in our research, we found Brian Titley's Dark Age, The Political Odyssey of Emperor Bokasa, particularly helpful. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Dictators for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>